Well, welcome to Sunday Coffee. It's been a while. Bart Gregory, Charlie Winfield. Charlie, how you doing, man? Man, I'm good. <laughs> it's, hard, it's hard to believe. We took a little bit of a hiatus. We didn't feel like we could back end the last show we did, and it would take a little bit of time to do that. And, Charlie, I don't know about you, but I've gone back and listened to that show about four or five times just to kind of capture the moment. I mean, anytime you're kind of feeling down, just go back and listen to that show. The scene at the Hilton that night after winning the national championship was absolutely obscene. And I just think back, and, man, every time I listen to it, I just laugh. One of my friends the other day said, or, or he got in my car, he's like, are you listening to your own podcast? And I said, I am. And I said, but I'm not listening to me. I'm not listening I've to been, Bart. I've been called vain many times <laughs> by right. Jen over the last <laughs> last few I'll weeks. I'll wear it. I'll wear it. That's <laughs> fine. It, but it wasn't about me. It's hearing a guy like Jake Mangum be so excited, hearing a guy like Cole Gordon, Chris Young, you know, Brandon Woodruff, Brantley. I mean, all these guys just being willing to jump on with us and talk about it. And you could hear the thing for me, and the, the phrase that I keep hearing for people is raw emotion. Just the yeah. raw emotion, not only the people talking with us, but the people in the background. And I'll be honest with you, you know, we had talked about, do we get together on the Sunday? We get back. Do we, I just didn't feel like we could do anything to put it in perspective any better than what we had done. And it was just going to be such a letdown. And candidly, Bart, I'll be honest with you. Um, I've kind of been through a lot of different emotional waves coming home from Omaha. I've been, number one, I've been exhausted. Yeah, that's, that's, that's a the big long, thing. Yeah. long ways. And I have spent a ton of time on Twitter. I've looked at every bit of merchandise available. <laughs> I've tried to process it. I've had my days sitting here trying to dig through statistics and figure it all out. And I think it's probably helpful for me just to have a little bit of separation and perspective. You know, looking back at how it all kind of unfolded for us, and I think one of the big things, and we talked about it in that last show about – how when you took the lead in the middle innings, you had a you know you had a feel that you were going to win it. I mean, barring a, a miracle letdown that was going to haunt you the rest of your life, missing a pop up or whatever, you, you felt like you were going to win the whole thing in about the fourth inning, and so it gave you a chance to sit there. So what and, and think about and gather all your emotions and watch it and kind of just enjoy it. That was the good thing about it, but also. I got a text message about the seventh inning from our friend Chris Young, who's the bullpen coach of the Cubs. And you could tell it was that text that he was just wanting to text somebody or just to talk to somebody. And he was on the bus with the Cubs coming back from Milwaukee, going back to Chicago. And he sends a text and says, you know, I, I don't know what to do with my hands. I'm, I'm, about, to, I'm about to go crazy right now. <laughs> and I, said, I sent him a text back and I said, hey, if we win this thing, we're going to call you. And that kind of was like, you know what? When we got to the hotel, I was like, hey, we got to call Chris. It was like, well, gum, let's just start calling some of these guys. And, Charlie, let me tell you this. This is what's so funny to me is, is we called the different guys. We started with Jeff Brantley. I've heard from several other major league players, and I feel like, and I told them that I would, I would like to apologize. I'm not going to call you by name. I will apologize for not calling you because you have reached out to me. We have had Major League Baseball players reach out to us and say, I can't believe you didn't call me. Well, I think we can plead insanity. Yes. Uh, because nobody in that Hilton was in their right faculties. And I'll say it right now. Kendall, you were pitching. 
You got to win that night. Right. You, were, you were pitching in Toronto at the exact same time. That doesn't mean we he's letting you off the hook. <laughs> <laughs> that means he's letting you off the hook. Not, a, not at all. We left there and we left Omaha and decided, hey, we didn't have anything to do that next weekend. Let's go to Chicago. We're going to drive over to Chicago, and you know, I enjoy you know Michigan Avenue, and the Cubs weren't even in town, and we were going to go over there. And we're we're driving through the state of Iowa. Which, by the way, in the month of July, when the corn is about head high in the rolling hills of Iowa, Iowa is a pretty state. I mean, it's, it's kind of desolate. I mean, there's not a whole lot to it as far as driving through towns or anything. But the, the, the state is a, is a pretty state that time of year. We stopped through Iowa City, and I got a, I got a call asking to come back and, and do the, uh, the emceeing of the, of the championship celebration. So I looked at Jen, and I was like, hey, you know, I know we're – supposed to be over here this weekend what do you want me to tell them she's like what do you tell them i mean you, you got to go and now we just got to figure out how to get there so sims and i flew back from chicago she says but i'm staying in chicago i'm gonna stay over there and me and wells are gonna have fun so you and sims can come back so we flew back we got in that day and which to be honest with you i was honored i was it was it was an awesome deal the uh, championship celebration was crazy that was amazing it, it was and I remember the 2013 celebration we had, and it was a bunch of people there, and it was great. And But I never thought it would be that many people. You'll get a kick out of this because this place was packed. It was as packed as it's ever been for anything. And I remember so my wife calls me that afternoon and says, are we going to go? I said, well, I mean, I feel like we need to. I mean, I, I mean, some, I, I, I mean we got to get some people there. You know, I, yeah. I'm sitting here worried that this was going to be a big letdown. There ain't going to be anybody there. But everybody's driving back from Omaha. I mean, nobody's going to be there. And <laughs> it's packed. And so I was like, okay, just, you know, Daniel. And first of all, I thought I thought Daniel Watkins and Michelle Pontiff marketing, Matt Meyer, Leah Beasley, I thought for the whole situation of everything coming together, they did a magnificent job of putting that celebration together. Benny Ashford and the SEC Network Plus guys and you know everybody to, to film that. I thought they did a great job on the quick turnaround to get that thing done. And I'm sitting there, Charlie, and to me it was just so surreal of seeing that many people at the ballpark. And this is crazy. You know, we talked about this a couple times on the show. When you get up there to talk and you see that just wad of people and just that mound of people in every direction – and some of these speakers get up to talk, and, the, and the, the fans will cheer. They have the cowbells. They'll stand up or whatever. And it was crazy. And I, I, thought, of, I thought this when Chris Lamonis was up talking, and the crowd was on its feet, and they're, they're cheering or whatever, and the cowbells are ringing. And the only thing going through my mind is I sit there and look at that wall of people because I don't think you understand when you're on the field how that upper deck jets out, and it just creates a wall of people. And the only thing that I could think of sitting there is, how does a kid from Alabama, from Florida, Texas A&M, from Auburn, how does a 19-year-old kid throw a strike? How do you do it? Because by the time kids get to Major League Baseball, if you're drafted out of high school, by the time you get to Major League Baseball, you're 21 years old. You've been at least three years in the minor leagues. But I'm sitting there going, how is a 19-year-old kid, when the crowd's on its feet, when the crowd is in the game, when we start talking about that Notre Dame game, about how early in the game the crowd kind of almost like willed yourself into that game. I'm sitting there going, how does a 19-year-old kid from an opposing team throw a strike? It's got to be really difficult. And 
We made the comment, and I don't back away from this at all. You look at all the things that helped get Mississippi State to the point of winning a national championship. A lot of those guys we talked to. Because every experience you have just places another brick in the wall as you try to get there. But you go back and your Brantleys, your Clarks, your Palmeros, all those guys that help lay the foundation, your Pete Youngs, your Burke Masters, you know, you could go all the way through those guys. All those people matter. Ron Polk matters. John Cohen deserves a ton of credit because John Cohen picked up a program that needed a little boost and kind of built it back up and then ultimately found the right guy to run it. But all those things go to it. But I think as much as anything else, there's an inanimate object that contributed to Mississippi State becoming a national champion, and I think it's going to contribute to us being there and being there, and it's that stadium. It's just different than the old one. And now, look, I was never a big fan of the Duty Noble that we tore down to build this one. It was a prefab, you know, let's put it together. It, it was good for what it did. But, you know, there were a lot of people that had this emotional attachment. I, I never did. I think it was more the emotion for the outfield than it was the infield. Because, like you said, hey, I grew up coming here. Of course, you know, when we came here as kids, it was the wood bleachers. And then you, you built the, the – chicken wire. <laughs> and then you built the, the concrete wall. And, you know, if you were going downstairs to go to, to the restroom or the concession stand or whatever, you missed that part of the game. And sometimes those concession stand lines are long because you didn't have but, but two. And that was it. You had two concession stands in the entire stadium. So I never felt that emotional – attachment to the and I understand you know some people had the seats and they bought the seats and they 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 had the emotional attachment and I understand that but you know looking back and and Charlie I said this in the in the super regionals about how you know there was almost like the NFC championship series and now you're going to go to the Super Bowl and you're going to get in front of 24,000 people who really don't don't care you're going to have some of your fan base and some of the other fan base but let me tell you this I, I, I do not look past this point of that guy who lives in Madison who decided on Saturday night, kind of like me and you did. Yeah, that's right. And said, you know, I'm going to Omaha. I'm going for that final three series. And I, I tell you what, those last two games, I think you saw it with Kumar Rocker. I thought you saw it with Vanderbilt in the infield in that championship game. I thought you saw a team who was essentially playing on the road who kind of folded a little bit under the pressures of playing in front of that bigger crowd and it was all Mississippi State. How is that ball game different if in the first inning that comebacker to Kumar Rocker is thrown cleanly to second base and not out into center field? One of the biggest plays of the game. And we we sometimes hear these guys, and we, we hear their names for so many years that we kind of elevate them to being a little bit beyond human, that they're robots, but they're not. I mean, that's still a young guy. And he had been on the biggest stage. He had been there. He had done that in Omaha. But he had done it in front of that crowd like you were talking about, where there's 750 Vanderbilt fans and 750 for whoever they're playing, and then a bunch of guys from Omaha. That was a home crowd. I've never seen anything like what we saw going on the road for Mississippi State. And I was sitting beside a gentleman, and he's one of these guys. And he says, I live in Omaha. I buy these tickets. I buy the season tickets for Creighton. I'm a baseball guy. I'll come to a few Creighton games during the year. I'll come to 50% of the College World Series. I usually don't come on back-to-back days. 
this was game three, and he said, this is the first time in the final series I've been here. Nobody's even used my tickets. I don't understand how to transfer. I don't oh. understand Ticketmaster. And I'm sitting there going, dude, you've you lost a lot of money on lost. the ground, buddy. <laughs> yes, sir. And we're talking about it, and he, he says, you know, that's the thing. He's, I, I'm kind of cheering for you guys just because of what you brought here. He said, normally I really wouldn't care. And that's, that's to be honest with you, usually – 70% of the crowd at Omaha, they really don't care. And he says, hey, let me tell you this. Not only have I never seen anything like this, we've never seen anything close to this. Because game threes, normally you've got half the outfield is empty because nobody buys up the tickets because they release those tickets on Wednesday and there's not demand there at all. And he said, you have a lot of splotching in the, in the grandstand area. He's like, we've never seen anything close to this. And so it, what you saw from our people, and that's what kind of makes you so proud, is is we're different. Well, and I, I want to go a step beyond that, too, just beyond people like you and me and other what I'll call normal fans. It is really cool because you look, Rafael Palmero was out there the entire World Series. And that's a long time. Oh, my goodness. Dak is there for the finals. Jeff Simmons is there. Roy Oswalt never played at State, but it's a State guy. He's there. You can go through the list of all these former players. I saw Marshall Gilbert. You know, you see all Apple these guys. Applebaum was there. And so you start to look and you say, it's one thing to get on Twitter. It's another to wear a T-shirt now and then and act like you're a fan and kind of play the crowd. These guys were invested. And you know what we didn't know that took place while you and I were doing our show in the Hilton is that while that was going on, Dak Prescott, do you know this story? Dak Prescott, there's people that hear this car just like laying on the horn. Dak jumps out of this car out on the lobby, leads everybody singing the fight song, and gets <laughs> it, it takes back off. You don't fake that. No. That's that's real. And I don't know what it is, but if you want to go back, I think baseball's always had that connection. You know, you go to a baseball game, we see our friend Russ Aldrich, you know, who will talk to us and send us messages during games. You know, that's a guy that played in the late 70s and – it means something to him. It always has. You go back, those guys, all the way back, if you've had that connection with baseball, you tend to maintain it. We've started seeing it grow to other sports. And right now, I think we are kind of at the high point of that we've ever been at in terms of investment by former athletes, commitment by fans. It, it is a really, really good time, and you saw it in Omaha. It was, it was phenomenal. Our good friend, Rob Friedman, the pitching ninja, he um, he was in Denver last week during the All-Star game, and he asked Brandon Woodruff, and our good friend uh, at Six Pack, he, he tweeted that this morning about the interview that, that Rob did with, with Brandon Woodruff. And he says, hey, what's bigger, you making the All-Stars or Mississippi State winning the national championship? And he was like, let me tell you something. He said, that meant the world to me. That meant the world to me. And, hey, we had him on the phone. He didn't know. I mean, he was lost for words. Of course, he was lost for words because the team was coming in as we're interviewing Brandon, and they're going crazy. He said, <laughs> hey, guys, I can't – that's awesome. <laughs> and so, But the the way that the former players, the way that, you know, the, the old-timers, it's, it's, been a, it's been a pretty cool, cool thing. Charlie, here's the thing. When I look at winning a national championship, and we say this a lot, especially in the game of baseball, this is not football. This is not Bama, Clemson, Ohio State. You kind of get the feel midway through the season. This is a national championship team. Baseball's so different, and it's like basketball. You know, 
in in the finals right now with the Suns and the Bucks. And by the way, man, how about the Bucks last night? But they play the same five guys every game. Football is essentially going to play the same eleven guys every game. It's me versus you. Baseball changes so much when you got a guy on a bump. Baseball is it's a completely different team by who's out on the mound, and that's what makes it so cool. And so you look back during a season, and you say, "Hey, in the month of March, did you ever think this was a team that was going to win the national championship?" And I'd say, "Heck no, no, I mean, not at all." This was a team, and this is not to to downplay, and this is not to 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 take shots, of course, but this was a team that was one hit by a guy from Eastern Michigan going into the ninth inning against Eastern Michigan. This is a team that had to battle back and win two walk-offs against Tulane. This was a team that Kent State had a Saturday guy. Was it Aldrich? Uh, Luke Albright. Luke Albright, who just shoved it. And, I mean, and you felt as helpless after that game as you possibly could. So that's the thing about this game is it changes so differently. So let me let me add something to that real quick too, and I think that's especially true. That's something about this game this year, and that's one of the reasons that this championship is so satisfying to me. You're talking about football. If we go into a football season, how many teams right now would you say have a legitimate chance to be national champions this year? Six. Six to eight, maybe. Yeah. Four. But it's a small number. Well, I was going high and saying yeah. six. So – you look at basketball, how many teams have a chance to win it? 10, 12? 10 or 12, yeah. All right, baseball this year, how many teams had a chance to win it? 20. Because you got the eight who were there, none of those were cheap. All those are good teams. Notre Dame is one of the best teams in the country. They were a pitcher away from being great. They're not there. Arkansas finishes the year number one RPI. They're not there. I mean, there's a whole bunch of teams. And you go back, look. If Arkansas doesn't lose Paulette, if Ole Miss doesn't lose Hoagland, I mean, and you can go through the list, all these guys that come down to one injury, we'll touch on that in a minute, hat tip to Scott Foxhall for managing a pitch staff properly. But you go back and you look, we said coming in, this was going to be the most difficult year, the deepest year, because not just your perennial powers were going to be good, because you've got all these guys with extra eligibility, you're going to have guys back who wouldn't have been in years prior. You're going to have guys who didn't get drafted who were going to be back for that reason. And a lot of these guys were going to filter down to some other teams. There was a depth of talent in college baseball this year unlike we've ever seen. And to emerge through this year yeah, with everything that had to happen to go right. And then you go back, Bart, like look at the season. How many times could we walk in here on a Sunday happy and then you've got like an equal number of where you and I walk in here and say, boy, I just don't know. This team just doesn't really have it. Well, you look back at the, the two-lane series, okay? You had two walk-off wins. Of course, you had the, the Luke Hancock Grand Slam on the Saturday. I still have no idea what I was meaning by say hello to my little friend. No idea. And then the next day, you know, you lost the first game with Oltoff, just shoved it. And then in the Sunday game, you're down by a run in the bottom of the ninth inning with runners at second and third and two outs. And if Tanner Allen hits a line drive to the shortstop or that ball hangs up for the center fielder, you lose two out of three to two lane. But you win five to four. So you start talking about a loss to Kent State. You were one hit 
through eight innings, and you were able to come back and beat Eastern Michigan on the walk-off home run by Logan Tanner. So what does that mean? And, you know, we preach all the time about the, the game of baseball, the ebbs and flows, and about how, you know, you lose the game, you can't panic. And that's kind of what we're saying. But also, that's not to say that these games don't matter. Because if you lose two out of three to Tulane, a team that eventually did not make the NCAA tournament, you lose a game against Kent State. You're headed to South Bend instead of Notre Dame coming to you. That's the whole key. That's the whole key. You're the 10 seed going to South Bend instead of the 7 seed playing Notre Dame. Yeah, and, you know, you go back and look, there's so many kind of those pivotal moments throughout the year. One of the things that's interesting to me about this team, we didn't lose a lot of close games. No, we didn't. We won a lot of close games, which to me was the definition of this team the first month and a half of the season is you never felt like, even though if you were down, that you were out of a ball game. Except when we got beat. We got beat. We got beat. We, did. <laughs> we got beat bad. Yeah. You're thinking Nikhazy just, you know, murdered us. We we had some games where we were just not good. You look at a lot. We don't have many losses on the year, but a lot of them are big. Hey, how about Missouri on the in the Saturday game? We had to do Sunday coffee after that. <laughs> I mean, and what did we say that day? Is, hey, we were closer to getting swept than we were winning two out of three this yeah. weekend against Missouri. And Missouri looked like a better team than us. They did. And then all of a sudden – you roll over to the SEC tournament, and of course, I, we got another story for another day for that about just how you play the SEC tournament. But looking back at the season, is there a defining moment for you? I, I think back to you know we talk about the home run against Tulane and the the walk off against Tulane in the Sunday game. You know, coming back the no hitter after you lose to Kent State, you come back the next day and you throw a no hitter. About how this team could always bounce back and come back and play. Just looking back at the season and the schedule, is there really a defining moment for you looking back at the regular season? Yeah, and I think that it would be tough to ignore the sixth inning against Ole Miss. Yeah, I agree. On Sunday. I think, to me, that was when everything started to come together for this team, when they just seemed to have something else. I also thought, here's what's really interesting – the Saturday game against Ole Miss, where Nikhazy beats us 9 nothing, that was the midpoint of the season. So that was game 34. You roll over into Sunday, and that's the day that you start the second half of the year. As we roll into that Sunday, Tanner Allen is sitting here about a 330 hitter. He ends the season hitting, what, what close to 390. Yeah. That tells you what kind of back half he had. That Sunday game, I thought, kind of literally and figuratively started the second half. I thought it started the change for Mississippi State. You know, baseball is so different than a lot of other sports, and, and I have – I think you do too. We have a mutual respect for what Mike has done in Oxford and to see how he has built that program. And he built it. He built it. He built it. And I know with all apologies to Jake Gibbs, Mike Bianco took Ole Miss and has taken Ole Miss to a different level with their baseball. And I respect the heck out of Mike and about what he's done and poured into that program. And so this is not to pile on to him in a joyous occasion for us. But you look back to that moment. You look back to the bottom of the sixth inning. How does the season play out? Because we stopped them. If you lose two out of three right there on Super Bowl all weekend, you kind of wonder what it does to your psyche. So you go to the bottom of the sixth inning. Ole Miss is just taking a 4-2 to two lead. Leatherwood's hit a home run. Remember that. We, they hit a home run at the top of the sixth inning. And all of a sudden, we go to the bottom of the sixth. 
And Drew McDaniel had just been throwing a crazy game against us. He was so good. Hancock, and we didn't expect that out of him. No, we didn't. Hancock, and he was on the cusp. So you understand what Mike Bianco is doing right there. Hancock flies out the left. You got the first out of the sixth inning. We're not touching McDaniel. But and all, he had just gone, I think, like to 90. He, he was in the 90s yeah. pitch-wise right there. So you get the first out of the inning, and we're not hitting McDaniel at all. And they bring Mallets in, and he gives up three straight hits. Logan Tanner, Josh Hatcher, Skinner, all of a sudden it's a 4-3 game. They bring in Austin Miller. He gets a strike out of Forsyth. DeBrule singles. Rowdy Jordan had an infield single. <laughs> Tied up the game at four. And so you, you just kind of wonder. And, of course, that all sets up for – Best on best. You know, for, for Tanner Allen. Broadway comes in, first pitch. Well, actually throws two balls. and got two and oh. My favorite count is a hitter. And then Tanner rips that ball to right center field. So you, you ask yourself the question. You know, how does everything play out if McDaniel stays in that ball? And game? we've talked about two events so far that involve Tanner Allen, and this is why I love Tanner Allen as a hitter. You go back to that ball game against Tulane where we get the walk-off on Sunday. You know, that wasn't a matter of us being tied and, you know, trying to win it, not go to extras. You're about we're, to lose. Yeah, we're down to our final strike, guys, on second and third. And so what does he do? He has a disciplined approach. He goes the other way, stays inside the baseball, gets it over the shortstop, we win the game. Compare that or contrast that, I suppose, with the ball game against Ole Miss. Now he's at the plate. Now he's sitting 2-0. and He's not having to be defensive. He knows a fastball is coming because Broadway doesn't want to go 3-0 and on him with the bases loaded. And I go back to the point that I made a little bit ago about sitting there at the pitcher's mound. All of a sudden, Broadway's in the game. You got the bases loaded. You got a 2-0 count, and you got that mound of people and that wall of people that's on their feet. They had Tanner Allen swinging. And, oh, man. And he just timed it that's, up. That's almost like you got no chance. You got no chance to try to – you're trying to fill a fastball in the middle of the zone on a 2-0 count to Tanner Allen with you know 15,000 people screaming in your ear, and he absolutely destroyed it. So then going through the season – you know, I thought that was a really big defining moment. And then you get to the SEC tournament. Here's here's my thought of the SEC tournament. I love the SEC tournament. I love the baseball. I love getting up in the morning. I love going to the early game. Sometimes you go back to the hotel and you kind of hang out and you come back for the nightcap. You stay out till 1 o'clock in the morning watching baseball. You get back up the next day at 9. I love the SEC baseball tournament. And if you are trying to fight, scratch, and claw to, A, get into the NCAA tournament, to try to be a host, try to be a national seed. If you're playing for something, yeah, it does mean a whole lot. But I put the SEC tournament, to me, on par with the month of March around spring break, going over to Sarasota and watching the Orioles play in the afternoon and then driving up to Tampa and watching the Yankees play at night. I'm a baseball fan that's just enjoying baseball. And that's kind of how you have to go into – the SEC tournament from a mindset standpoint. Now, I understand some of the reaction because we thought we were scratching and clawing to get a national seed. That was warranted a little bit. But the over-analysis there was pretty crazy. But, hey, Charlie, I mean, does any other moment really jump out at you about kind of what changed the season? I, I think about, to me, I've had a chance to go back and watch the College World Series, the, the Virginia game. I've had a chance to go back and watch the, the th- three games against Vanderbilt because we were there. We didn't see the TV broadcast. 
I look back to the Virginia game in the eighth inning when that cat's got a no-hitter going or a one-hitter going or whatever he's got going at that time. No-hitter going at that time. Yeah, going into the eighth. And that at bat by Scotty DeBrule, that's probably a season changer right there. To win that game, DeBrule at the plate, down 1-2, works the count full, takes a pitch that's just down. It was down. Takes a pitch just down on 3-2. And then all of a sudden you got a base runner and a guy that's got a no-hitter working from the stretch late in the game. That kind of opens the door for you. I thought even though it was, quote-unquote, just a walk, I thought that was one of the biggest at-bats of the season. Absolutely. And I think once we got to the finals, I think Scotty DeBrule had 10 at-bats in the first five innings of those three games against Vanderbilt. I think he went full count on eight of them. It was either six of eight. It was you know basically three out of four times he's come to the plate, he's running the count full. And you say, well, what's the importance of that? When you're trying to get lighter out of a game, you're trying to get rocker out of a game. Yeah. I mean, that guy was going up there having ten pitch at bats all the time. I thought, to me, you know, it's really interesting when you start to look back and you say, what defines this team? And I think about those teams in the 80s, and I immediately think Clark and Palmero, And you, you think about these – kind of individual players who played larger than life. With this team, this team was a little bit tough to appreciate, I think, in the moment because of the way that they won. We didn't win because we had a Brent Rooker-like season going from somebody. You know, obviously Tanner Allen was player of the year. I don't want to downplay what he did, but we didn't have the big home run hitters. This was a scrappy team, and they were a little bit old school. I've always said that I thought the – four-day span, three-day span of what Mississippi State pitching-wise did in 1997 here at this regional. And we've talked about this regional so many times, about what Eric DeBose did Thursday, then Monday, throwing the complete games. And, yeah, Will Bednar did not throw a complete game in the College World Series. But I think without doubt that what he did over that span of the College World Series – over the College World Series, what he did is probably the best pitching performance we've ever had. Yeah, I I was telling somebody we I love going down these rabbit holes, but I I said at the time that like Morgan Williams forty one points against Baylor to get Mississippi State into the Final Four was an all time great Bulldog performance. Yeah, Dante Jones last month as a Mississippi State Bulldog was as good a month as any Mississippi State basketball players ever had. He was kind of that thing that pushed you over the top. I think what you saw from Will Bednar in a ten day span beating Texas twice against Ty Madden, beating Vanderbilt in Kumar Rocker. I mean, the guy beat two top five teams, and he beat two first-round draft picks three times. So let me ask you this question. And here's the thing about the game of baseball. When you start talking about matchups and putting guys on the mound, do you wonder – do you wonder, and this is not a – this is not – I'm not second-guessing Will Bednar because I want him on my team every time. What if we win the Friday game against Texas? I thought about this. And Will Bednar pitches Monday against Jack Leiter. And loses. Let's so, assume that we lose that game 3-2. 2-1, 3-2, like that. How does it change everything? You lose. I mean, and that's, that's, the, that's, the one, that's the great thing about this game is things have to line up. I, I, I tell you what, I mean, and, hey, you know, you say, well, hey, he had to go against Kumar Rocker in the last game. And that is true. But I thought at, at the end of the year, Leiter was a lot better than Rocker. I did too. 
And so that, that's 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 what's so awesome about it. How everything the stars just kind of lined up. Okay, so now you know we've had some questions about going forward. And hey, it is awesome. I was sitting in Nanaway last night, and my dad looked at me over dinner, and he says, "Can you believe we won a national championship?" Can you believe it? I mean, it's been two weeks, and it just all of a sudden just came out. Can you believe that? And my 90-year-old grandmother sitting right over there, and she says, I never thought I'd see it. <laughs> never thought I'd see it. And so it, it it's meant so much to so many people, and it's been so awesome to read and see all the texts and the tweets about your family and about you know, all these people who have their stories about growing up at the ballpark and, and how much, you know, winning – means to them and then somebody asked me the other day they called the office and they said you know how are you feeling have you come down from the high and I was like you know it's crazy how when you look at the national championship I think 65 percent of it is you're being ecstatic that you won but I think 35 percent is just relief of it's it's over yeah there's now 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 I can go to Baton Rouge and not want to sit in the corner. Yeah, you know? that's right. Because now it's kind of like we've been at the kids' table at Thanksgiving, and we've been invited to the meal. Now we're at the now we get to sit with the grown ups. <laughs> we could use real silverware. That's right. <laughs> no more cornet. Um, you know, we did have some good questions. You mentioned some of those. Um, I want to talk about one. We got one from Jay in Baltimore, who is a oh Jay listens to every show. We appreciate. It. I met Jay. In the season, I think it may have been Super Bowl all weekend. Yeah, it was, he was here. It was one of the weekends here, and I met Jay in the outfield. Just a great guy. And so he had a question about whether we think that kind of teams are going to go more. One, I guess, is kind of the more home runs in TDM air trade than we've been seeing. True. Very true. Um, that surprised me, honestly. Well, and I think a lot of it is in our mind a little bit because in 2013, when we were there before, the wind was blowing in 20 miles an hour, and you had the old baseballs that had the high seams, and so it, it, you didn't have that hard ball that you're hitting. So, I mean, we're kind of – from a mental standpoint, we're skewed to the extreme. You see what I'm saying? Yeah. No, I think that's true. So, I was surprised because I remember in, in 13 just mashing some balls. Yeah. And they went out to die on the track. But he asked whether he thought teams were kind of moving more to a pro style, which is basically – Let's get a guy on and hit one out, or for that matter, let's just – there's no such thing as a two-strike approach in Major League Baseball anymore. Your approach on every pitch is to try to hit it out. Very Arkansas. Yeah. You know, we've seen that. I spent some time going back, and I was digging through stats like a madman, trying to figure out what Mississippi State did this year that gave them the success they had. And you go back and you look, here's what's interesting. We talk so much about this new launch angle era with teams you know, trying to hit home runs, even with two strikes. There were two teams in the league this year. Excuse me, there were three. There were three teams in the league this year who across the course of the season hit more ground balls than fly balls, which is exactly opposite of what they're preaching now in Major League Baseball. It's the opposite of, say, in Arkansas – Arkansas, by the way, hit 40% more fly balls than ground balls. Wow. That's a team thinking launch angle. But there were three teams in the league who hit more ground balls than fly balls. Two of them were in the finals of the College World Series. So I I take that point, and you look at how it it heats up at the end of the year. And so you can go to so many different thought processes about 
does that approach, what you're talking about, the home run ball, does that help you more early in the season than late in the season? Because it's almost like teams that are line drive ground ball teams kind of migrate to hitting fly balls and hitting home runs late in the year just because of wind patterns and the way it gets it's warmer. I thought we were a line drive hitting team, and then in Omaha and toward the end of the season, we became more of a launch team just because of that, because of the hot weather, because of the wind patterns. And, and you hit more home runs. And I, I think for a longevity standpoint, now you ask the question too is, you know, where do you go from here? You know, Crystal Monis' teams, they hit a lot of home runs at Indiana. Is that the is that the style that you're going to stay with? Is it line drives and doubles that become home runs late in the year? Or are you going to try to get guys? Now, hey, Kellum Clark – Kellum, yeah, well, Kellum Clark is 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 a launch angle guy. Yeah, yeah he wasn't thinking. Uh, let's just get one in play here. But, <laughs> Shorten up. But you've always had guys. You know, David. I think of David Heyman. David Heyman was a launch angle guy. You know, twenty years ago. Yeah, and so twenty five years ago, we're so, all getting old. So how about this? You go through, and I was looking. So what gave Mississippi State the key offensively? Batting average seventh in the league. Slugging percentage ninth in the league. On base percentage fifth. It doesn't matter what you want to do. Sixth in the league in hits, sixth in RBIs, 12th in the league in home runs. Stolen bases, fourth. So you go through here and you say, what is it that we did well? And John Cohen talked about this when he was here, the importance of not striking out. We didn't strike out. We, were, we struck out less than any other team in the league. And so I came back and you start diving into these things and you start to say, all right, what is it that gave us our advantage? Number one, we didn't strike out. But number two, we figured out a way to get guys to third base. We had a lot of uh, – I think I would say it this way, Bart, and you're going to laugh at me, which you do a lot. The defining characteristic of this team is we were good at getting out. And what I mean by that is – Driving a run from third. How we got out. If you go back, we made them pick it up and throw us out. We were the best team in the league by far at getting runners home from third base with less than two outs. Yeah. We were the best team in terms of manufacturing runs, and we didn't do it with bunting. We weren't a bunt team. No, it's, but, a, it's a ground ball to the second baseman when you got a guy at third. It's a sacrifice fly. So this, this season, 68% of the time that we had a runner on third and less than two outs, we got him home with an RBI. So that doesn't even count the number of times you get a ball back to the screen or something crazy happens, and you had several of those. Success advancing runners. We advanced runners 51% of the time, best in the league. And so you go back, we are using outs. How about this? And without bunning. This year. We're not bunning. Now, how about this? They have a stat. You can dig into this. The number of times that you advance runners with an out. So it's the scenario you're talking about. you got a guy on second. Maybe he walked, stole second, and we got a guy on second, nobody out. We get a ground ball to second base. He moves to third. We did that 201 times this year using an out to advance a runner. So what's that? Three times a game, four times a game? Yeah. Significantly more than anybody else in the league. It's old school baseball. I made the comment earlier that at times it was tough to appreciate what we did, but it's tough to get excited about a ground ball to second base that moves a runner sometimes. I swear, if I ever coach a college baseball team, which I won't. We're getting in the short rows. Yeah, that's right. (laughs) (laughs) Better get busy. Um, I will have my team meet the guy about halfway to home plate who grounds out and moves a runner. 
I will meet the guy who flies out to right field and moves the runner from second to third, if for no other reason than to tell him you did a good job, but to make sure the fans recognize it too. Yeah. The success of our team this year in many ways was predicated on how we got out. We made people pick it up, throw us out. We reached on errors significantly more than anybody else in the league. There are only a couple of teams who reached more than 40 times on errors. We reached 55. What does that go to? Put it in play. It's still college baseball. And that's Guys why, can screw it up. And what you're talking about now, Charlie, is the reason, I think one of the major reasons that you win games is you don't give the opposing team a chance to do the same thing when you're ratcheting up as many strikeouts as we had. Yeah, what's the – how do you help a bad defense? I mean, I hate to call us a bad defense. Just give them a chance. His, yeah, don't make them have to make the play. You know, if you look right, we had – more errors on the left side of our infield than anybody else in the league. Didn't in the World Series, though. And Those then all of guns. a sudden, <laughs> these guys, we got Ozzie Smith and uh, Brooks Robinson. Yeah, I mean, what are we doing? <laughs> and so, and, and you go back, I, you made this point coming into the Super Regional. I think teams who play on dirt all year have an advantage when it gets to this time of year. I do, too. I do. The spin is completely different. There's, if you go play on turf, there is no transition. There's no lip coming from the grass to the dirt. It's all flat. We made plays like we were used to them. I thought the ball just seemed to get on the defenders a little bit faster with different spin. Look, Vanderbilt was bad in the field. Texas struggled at times in the field. You go back and you look. Notre Dame here. Was, yeah. They do, and it, it's it's the same thing as playing tennis at Wimbledon or playing in the French Open. It's it's I mean you see some some guys Nadal was phenomenal on on clay, Federer was not. Now Nadal was good everywhere, but Federer was not good on clay, but he was good on grass. It's just a different bounce, and that's the same way the game of baseball not not as pronounced as the game of tennis. Okay, going forward, hey, this was awesome. This was crazy, but for us. Hey, we're going to – we took our little sabbatical. We're getting ready, going to get geared up for football. We're going to get really rolling in August. And, you know, Charlie and I have kind of tried to put together a plan. We, we try not to fly by the seat of our pants, even though that may be how it appears at times. But um, we'll start our Sunday coffee on a regular basis in the month of August. We have a, uh, a brand-new sponsor on our Sunday coffee. An appropriate one. Absolutely. Went by this morning and um, and got a uh, a nice blueberry cobbler from Strange Brew Coffee House. Strange Brew. They've got uh, three locations, two here in Starville, one on University Drive. That's where I went, right here at downtown. Of course, they got the original right on the corner of Spring and Highway 12. Used to be Woody's back when we were in college, and then it changed to Maroons. And then – Oh, man. So, it was still <laughs> Woody's when you were here? Yes. Oh, my gosh. I The – Midnight run for tater babies and uh, chicken strips <laughs> did not help my pants size. Of course, I've known Shane. You know Shane Reed and his family. They have uh, they have strange brew. I've known Shane forever, and Shane and his dad, his dad Woodrow, they have Woody's in Oxapater, which is the the mall of East Central Mississippi. And so we've been friends for a long time. And you know Shane is a uh, Shane's going to jump on with us on our Sunday coffee, and which is a you know, perfect situation there. So, you know, Charlie and I were trying to think about, you know, trying to maybe give a little bit more content, 
trying to figure out how to make it work. We're going to continue to do our out-of-left field show during the midweek that we'll put on WFCA French Camp. It may move from Thursday nights. Of course, they have junior college football they they produce on Thursday nights. It may move to you know, Tuesday, Wednesday. We've got to solidify that, but we, we do know we're, we're good there. And so we'll continue to do our interview show. We'll have great interviews. Last year during football season, we had Bruce Arians and – We've talked a good many times with our friend Joe Judge, and we'll talk to him throughout the season. And had Rick Neuheisel on. He's Rick, cool. Had Rick Neuheisel on last year. He was he was awesome. We uh, we've we've had some good guests on our football show. We'll continue to do our our show on uh, during the middle of the week on out of left field and do a lot of interviews. And of course, Sunday coffee. So many people have talked about our post game rap shows we did in baseball, which was a lot of fun. And it was great. We threw it together at the end. You know, Bank First and <clears throat> Two Brothers and you know, Maroon and White Realty and Mosquito Joe. They jumped on with us with these post-game rap shows. And people were like, hey, are you going to continue to do that with football? Well, essentially, that's Sunday coffee. That's what we do on Sunday morning, Sunday morning quarterback. And uh, Strange Brew going to bring us that. But we also thought about, you know, what else we could do during the week. And we've kind of settled on doing a Friday lunch. Just for you guys who are traveling to the games on Saturdays and just kind of previewing the weekend, kind of getting you ready for whoever state's playing that weekend. We'll do it on the Fridays of Mississippi State games. And so we'll do a, a Friday lunch for you. So we'll have a regular show, a Friday lunch, and then do a Sunday coffee. Yeah, and I think part of the idea on the Friday show is going to be to kind of dig into the matchups a little bit and kind of a little more hardcore preview, right? Absolutely. Um, all right, so, you know, you're kind of in the mode of, of getting out of here, I can tell, Bart, wanting to wrap it up. We've kind of gone over our time a little bit, but i got to ask you this. When you look back on this Mississippi State team, when we're telling the story of this team 20 years from now, what's going to be your memory? It was a tough team. I think it was a tough team that that always figured out a way to win games, win close games, to win close games. And, I mean, I think of, you know, Tanner Allen. It was almost like – here's what's so crazy about this team, the resiliency of this team. And we talk about how, you know, you can't manage the game of baseball in a short term. You've got to kind of look over the entire length of the season. You know, early in the year, Rowdy was bad at the leadoff spot, and he'll tell you that. Rowdy will tell you that. Everybody knew that. Rowdy was not hitting the ball at all. So what did we do? We dropped him in the order. We put Scotty DeBrule in the leadoff spot. We put Braylon Skinner in the leadoff spot a couple of times just because we were looking for a leadoff guy. But we knew at the end of the day in April, when April rolled around, the real Rowdy's going to show up. Because yeah, that's, it did. Because, and, and it did in a great ways. Then all of a sudden you're trying to figure out, hey, what you going to do at shortstop? Cam James had difficulties. You move him to third. Then he had difficulties with a throw. So you're trying to figure out who you can play there. Tanner Leggett coming in. Then all of a sudden, the Brule's not hitting. He's making mistakes in the outfield. So you move Leggett out to second base. You're trying to mix and match. There were so many different guys who lost their spots during the year that got them back. I thought, you know, Hatcher, you gave Hatcher the benefit of the doubt a long time, and he just couldn't pull the trigger over at first. So then all of a sudden you had to make the move with Hancock. But then you had to have that glove of how many times did he bail you out late in games with a glove? He came up with a big hit in the Virginia game. And so there was so that's the thing about this team is it's not like you lock nine guys in and says, here are my guys. You had the ups and downs, the trials and tribulations. You had that that you're going to see in every baseball season, and these guys kind of weathered that. Some teams fold. This team weathered it and was playing its best baseball. Everybody – Four side, like going back to the point a minute ago, 
Forsyth played the best shortstop he's played all year long in the last month of the season. Cameron James played the best third base he's ever played in the last month of the season. Scotty DeBrule had the best at bats he's ever had in the last month of the season. We, we, we don't talk about Luke Hancock enough. You go back to those strikeout numbers. Luke Hancock was the toughest batter in the SEC to strike out. 44 walks, 17 strikeouts. That's absurd. <laughs> Unbelievable. you got to go back to Palmero and those guys to find comparisons like that. Logan Tanner did not have a backup catcher. You had some guys that caught here and there. You know, Hancock caught some. You know, Garner came in late in some games during the regular season. But here's a guy when you got to postseason play that caught every single inning and I just don't think you can understate and so I know it's a long way to saying Tanner Allen became one of the best outfielders in the SEC and a guy that had played first base and, and he, Tanner Leggett put you into the finals and I, that's what I was going back to say and you got a guy like Tanner Leggett who had struggled offensively the batting average is not there if he could have hit a little bit he would have been in the lineup and now all of a sudden last week you go to baseball camp and you got a line of ten-year-old kids who want to take their selfie with Tanner Leggett. Yeah, I mean, there's cool. a guy. I love baseball. There's a guy that's going to be talked about for a long time. Braylon Skinner tried to run through a wall to catch a fly ball that went out of the yard. I mean, th- that's that's what I remember about this team. This team was. There are so many stories about this team that I'll never forget. So, I was telling somebody the other day. I think back to Phil Mickelson. And this is going to be a strange comparison. We got the open going on, so oh hey, yeah, I know exactly what you're about to say. So Phil Mickelson, for a long time, was known as the greatest golfer who had never won a major. Have I ever told you the story? I was about 20 yards away inside the rope when Payne Stewart rolled in the putt to win the U.S. Open to beat Phil Mickelson in 1999. He had the pager on his belt. His his wife was pregnant with her child. We're going to have it any day now. It was in Piners. Go ahead. I'm sorry. Well, no, it's a that is quite a moment. Um, you must have been working grounds crew there. Yes, I was. I was interning at Piners. It was great. So I was thinking back, and so Mickelson had was had this label as the greatest golfer to never win a major. And if you were to look back at his record, it is just littered with second place, third place finishes. And so you come in, and I, I forget which tournament it was. I think it was the U.S. Open. I think that must have been Wingfoot in 2002. But so Mickelson goes to the press conference, and he's sitting there, and of course he gets the predictable question, well, Phil, how does it be? How is it to sit here and still wear the title of best player to never win a major? And Phil looks at the guy, and he says, look. And he handled it well. What I look like, Greg Normandy? <laughs> <laughs> but he, he handled it well, and he said, look, you guys keep asking me about winning my first major. I'm not trying to win a major. I'm trying to win lots of majors. And I feel like if I ever break through, if I ever get that first one, lots of them are going to follow. And so you go back, you know, he wins the Masters in 2004, but comes back, I think wins majors the next two years, wins the Masters again. And it just kind of opened the door. Ultimately, what's he got now, like six? Six majors? And so you wonder, and I hope – that that's kind of where we are. I, I'm a big believer in institutional experience. I am too. And and we've gotten the question about, you know, what's it going to look like? What's next year's lineup going to look like? You know, who's going to fill the spot at second base? And, you know, what do you what are you looking for? Let me tell you, I, th- I think, you know, ask me in about two months. Because I don't think this roster is anywhere close to being set. 
you had the draft last week. You had signees. You had, what, four signees taken in the draft. And you still got free agent possibilities. And that's what I'm saying. I mean, there, there's a lot there's a lot that can change in the next two months or a month and a half. I'd say give me a month and a half. And then you kind of get an idea of what you're looking at because, you know, you look around the game of baseball, and, hey, now people are going to say, hey, you, you look at Mississippi State and you look at some of these Power 5 teams and, you know, you can become a transfer factory and you can you can be – you know, the place where the 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 guy who's the shortstop at a mid major who's a big time player, hey, that that's there's our second, there's our shortstop next year. Yeah, that's that's a good short term solution. And yeah, Scotty DeBrule was really good for us this year at the end of the year. It took him a while to catch up to ninety five. I mean that guy was a three fifty hitter at, at Jacksonville. I mean it took him a while to kind of catch on. But I'm telling you, I don't think you can recruit in today's world at the high school level or the junior college level where guys know that you are a transfer factory. I, I'm going to make a comparison. It's going to be the Jackie Sherrill football approach from the late 90s. And so the idea is this. You can use one or two to help you in spots where you need it to help make a transition. Yeah. Davis Mesh isn't ready to be your second baseman this year. He may be next year. Maybe DeBrule's the guy who bridges that gap. So you can plug in a couple of transfers here and there to help you. Or you can do what we did in football because we needed to, and we went all in on JUCO guys. And you know what it did for us? It got us to the SEC championship in 1998. But then in about 2000, you did the same thing, and it didn't work. Because all the guys from Arizona Western JUCO weren't quite as good as Willie Blade and Toby Galladay and Dorsett Davis, all right? <laughs> and so now you're kind of in a mess, and you find yourself chasing it. It once you take that first sip of it, if you if you go too far, it's tough to ever get enough, and that's the problem. I I am not one of these guys who says, "Hey, Tanner Allen's gone. Let's go find a transfer right fielder." Rowdy Jordan's gone. Let you know, Sky Rule. We've got guys who who are developing. And who may be the guys? Now, that being said, it wouldn't surprise me if you see a guy or two. No, not, not and at all. look, LSU's going to basically be last year's Arizona. They are. And so it's, it's, a healthy, it's a healthy mix. And so, like you said, Charlie, before you start, before you start shooting that in your arm, I mean, you got to understand, I mean, that's, that's a that's – Moderation a dis- is key. Yeah, it is. Hey, I enjoyed it. Uh, hey, it's great to be back, man. It, we went a little long this morning. We normally try to keep these between 30 and 40 minutes, but uh, we're still on the uh, emotional high of the College World Series. I appreciate you guys You know, keeping us engaged. Hey, sus- subscribe to the podcast. If you know, for, we're still having, having people saying, hey, we had no idea, and we, we've jumped on board. We started listening, and we do this each and every week. Go back and listen to some of the old shows. Uh, we have some great interviews in there for you. Subscribe. Give us a review if it's good. If if you don't like us, just that's okay. It's, we're we're not for everybody. Every hey, day. and when you stop in at Cannon Ford, tell them you know that you heard about them here. When you go down into Country Meat Packers, Country Pleasing Sausage, so tell hey, them you want the Barton Charlie special. 
Tell them they you don't want to... have one, but they should. Yep. Hey, we've been uh, we've been very blessed. You know, Farm Bureau has been unbelievable for us. Of course, our good friends at Country Pleasing Sausage, Heartland Catfish during the during baseball season as well. Looking forward to, of course, been a longtime friend of the folks at Strange Brew for a long time and welcoming them in. And we, uh, we'll, we'll kind of lay out the roadmap for you the next few weeks about where we are in the fall. We've got some really cool sponsors coming on as well. And so, anyway. Is Sunday Coffee back? Are we back to doing this now? I don't know. I mean, I guess that's something we need, me and you need to talk about off the air. Or do you want to talk about it right now? No, we're going to do it. Okay. All right. Here's what I'm not going to do, though. I'm not going to be the guy that says it's 74 days till football. Who is the greatest guy to ever wear 74? I <laughs> I can't take all these countdowns, man. Yep, I know. All right, so uh, Charlie and I will be back on Sunday Coffee. And we're not technically presented by Strange Brew yet, but, yeah, we are. Yeah. Heck, yeah, we are. And uh, we're fully all in. If you're ever in Starville, go by Colstone right there at the corner. Get you a shot of coffee. The Blueberry Cobbler, I don't know why I like it. I love it. I love it. I drink it just about every morning. And so appreciate you guys hanging out with us here on Sunday Coffee. And I guess we're brought to you by Strange Brew Coffee House. How about that?